Am I on? There we go. I am very grateful for Alan stepping in at the last minute last week. Um, I don't know if you ever think about how blessed we are as a body to have men of his caliber that are not just able, but are willing to, to step in and, and do what's, what's got to be done. And so I am grateful for him doing that last week. Open your Bibles if you're not already there. Open your Bibles, please, to the book of Revelation. Today we're going to be in chapter 11. Now, as we have gone through this book, and again, I, I try to do kind of these little summaries as we go along because I want these things to be fixed in your minds. The Apostle John is taken up to heaven. He meets the risen Christ, and Jesus tells him, commands him to write. And he is going to write the things which he has seen. He is going to write the things which are, and then he's going to write the things that will come, the things that will happen after these things. The things that he has seen is chapter 1. The things that are are the letters to the seven churches. That's chapters 2 and 3. And then the things that will take place after these things starts in chapter 4, verse 1, and takes up the rest of the book. We have seen... Uh, the focus on the church in chapters 2 and 3, and then we see no more mention of the church, basically in the rest of the book. And so the, the focus of the book shifts to God's people, Israel, the Jews, the, uh, the location of, of most everything in the rest of the book is transpiring in Jerusalem. At least the emphasis is in Jerusalem. We see that there are going to be a number of witnesses that are going to be proclaiming the name of Christ. Those witnesses are 12,000 Jews from each of 12 tribes for a total of 144,000. Today we're going to be looking at two witnesses that are going to be proclaiming God's word during this time. And those witnesses are primarily going to be ministering in Jerusalem. And so the focus shifts to Jerusalem and to God's work in the hearts of national Israel, where he is going to redeem them and they will be in truth his people. We saw in chapters 4 and 5 a huge worship service in heaven, starting with these four living beings that are in God's immediate presence, and followed by 24 thrones and 24 men on those thrones, and then the angels at large, and finally culminating with every living thing, every created thing, raising praise to the glory of God. And then we see a book introduced. This is a book that's written on the inside and the outside, and it has seven seals. 
and an exhaustive search is made through heaven and nobody is found who is worthy to open those seals and reveal what is written inside the book. But there is one who's worthy and that is the lamb that was slain because he has purchased for God men from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. And so Jesus comes and he takes the book and he begins to break the seals. And then in chapters 6 through 6 and 7 into the verse, first verse of, of uh, chapter 8, we have the seals being opened on this book. Now out of the seventh seal come seven trumpets. And we are in the middle of those being sounded. And so you have the seven trumpets being sounded. And what we're going to find today is that at the end, the seven, when the tr seventh trumpet sounds, that is going to give rise to a third round of judgments. And those are going to be the bowls where God's wrath is poured out, unmixed, undiluted on Satan, his dominion, and unrepentant man. And so today... Here we come to chapter 11. Now this is during, we are still in the sixth trumpet. That sixth trumpet began back in the middle of chapter 9, and it continues on because there are, <coughs> excuse me, there are a number of things that take place under here. So let's start, let's, uh, let's read our text. Revelation 11, beginning in verse 1. Then there was given me a measuring rod like a staff, and someone said, Get up and measure the temple of God and the altar and those who worship in it. Leave out the court which is outside the temple and do not measure it, for it has been given to the nations, and they will tread underfoot the holy city for 42 months. And I will grant authority to my two witnesses and they will prophesy for 1260 days clothed in sackcloth. These are the two olive trees and the two lampstands that stand before the Lord of the earth. And if anyone wants to harm them, fire flows out from their mouth and just devours their enemies. So if anyone wants to harm them, he must be killed in this way. These have the power to shut up the sky so that rain will not fall during the days of their prophesying, and they have power over the waters to turn them into blood and to strike the earth with every plague as often as they desire. When they have finished their testimony, the beast that comes up out of the abyss will make war with them and overcome them and kill them. And their dead bodies will lie in the street of the great city, which mystically is called Sodom and Egypt, where also their Lord was crucified. Those from the peoples and tribes and tongues and nations will look at their dead bodies for three and a half days and will not permit their dead bodies to be laid in a tomb. And those who dwell on the earth will rejoice over them and celebrate, and they will send gifts to one another because these two prophets tormented those who dwell on the earth. But after the three and a half days, the breath of life from God came into them and they stood on their feet and great fear fell upon those who were watching them. 
And they heard a loud voice from heaven saying to them, Come up here. Then they went up into heaven in the cloud, and their enemies watched them. And in that hour there was a great earthquake, and a tenth of the city fell. 7,000 people were killed in the earthquake, and the rest were terrified and gave glory to the God of heaven. The second woe is past. Behold, the third woe is coming quickly. Then the seventh angel sounded, and there were loud voices in heaven saying, The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he will reign forever and ever. And the 24 elders who sat on their thrones before God fell on their faces and worshiped God, saying, We give you thanks, O Lord God the Almighty, who are and who were, because you have taken your great power and have begun to reign. And the nations were enraged, and your wrath came, and the time came for the dead to be judged, and the time to reward your bondservants, the prophets, and the saints, and those who fear your name, the small and the great, and to destroy those who destroy the earth. And the temple of God, which is in heaven, was opened, and the ark of his covenant appeared in his temple, and there were flashes of lightning, and sounds, and peals of thunder, and an earthquake, and a great hailstorm. So we begin here, and again, remember, this is still in the context of the judgment that has happened in the sixth seal. That was the army from the east that has come and, and just wiped out two billion people. That's in the last part of chapter 9. And so John is given a reed. Now this is a reed that is common in the Middle East. They stand 15, sometimes 20 feet tall. They're straight and they're very light. And so it's something that you can wield. It's not unwieldy to be able to go since they don't have laser tape measures and all that good stuff. They have these things that they can go by and they can measure. And so John is given the command to measure. He's measuring those things. Everything belongs to God, but there are some things that are consecrated to God. And that's what he's measuring. He's measuring this temple that he can see. And he's measuring the altar. He's measuring the area for those who are worshiping. Now he's told, measure that. Do not measure the area outside where the Gentiles are allowed to access because they're going to trod, they're going to tread this underfoot. And they're going to do it for 42 months. Now, we're going to start seeing again. It's, 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 we've seen some of this before. Now we're going to start to see it on a regular basis. This idea of lengths of time. And you're going to see it referenced in three ways. We're going to see it referenced in the term of years. Often, when you, if you go back to Daniel, you'll see it referenced as time, times, and half a time. So time, one, times plus two, giving you three, and half a time giving you four. You'll see it referenced in terms of months. Excuse me, 
I, I just realized why my wife gave me a strange look. <laughs> and it's not just because of how I look. Time times and half a time, three and a half. I obviously need to go back to grade school math. <laughs> wow. That's got to really inspire confidence in all of you. Yeah. So time times and half a time, three and a half years. We'll also see it referenced in the terms of months. 42 months, 12 months in a year, so 42 months, three and a half years. We'll also see it referenced in terms of days. So you'll see 1260 days. And if you, you probably want to get your calculator out since obviously my math is not infallible. 1260 divided by 30, the Jewish uh, people reckoned on a 30-day lunar calendar. So 42 months times 30 days gives you 1260 days. So when you see that, that's half, that's half of a period. And three and a half is half of seven. And seven, <laughs> I know I'm not going to be able to put, get, get, get away from this. Seven is that number of the duration of the tribulation period. Now that's going to tie back, if you go back to Daniel chapter 9, you'll see that 70 weeks have been proclaimed for your people. And the last one, that last week, seven days translating, <laughs> excuse me, to seven years, that's the length of time of the tribulation. In Daniel, you get that the first half of that is pretty good, all things considered. As far as when it comes for the Jewish people, the first half of that, the first three and a half years, is okay. They're at peace. Um, people are generally not bothering them. They're not going after them. That changes radically at the midpoint. The Antichrist comes in, desecrates the temple, and basically demands to be worshipped as God. And because the Jews worship God and they are being transformed, they are being, they are undergoing individual and corporate salvation. We're going to be talking about that in the main service today. Because that is taking place, the Antichrist comes after them with every gun blazing. And so the last three and a half years, that's the time that is called the Great Tribulation. That is the time of immense suffering for God's people. Now, there is a first half and there is a second half. However, that doesn't mean that every rendering of 42 months or 1260 days translates into the first half or the second half. And the reason for making that point is these two witnesses. These two witnesses are going to minister for three and a half years. But they don't start at the very beginning, and they don't go to the very end. Now, if you go back into chapter 9, at the very beginning of chapter 9, you see a star falling from heaven, which had, excuse me, you see a star which had fallen from heaven. The key to the bottomless pit is given to him. This, this bottomless pit is the abyss. The abyss is basically jail for 
some of the fallen angels that went, <coughs> that went with Satan. And so the idea here is, is that you have had a number of these demons who have been kept under lock and key for centuries. And during the fifth trumpet judgment, those demons are released. And so you see a number of them coming from the abyss. Now, that becomes important when you look at the ministry of these two witnesses. These two witnesses are going to prophesy. This is foretelling, not foretelling. And we all appreciate the difference with that, right? Not if yes, shake your head if no. No. Okay, good. Thank you. So the idea here, we often think of the idea of prophecy as someone coming and revealing something that has previously been hidden. That would be foretelling. Here is, um, so for instance, we are being told now ahead of time that there are going to be two witnesses specifically that are going to have a specific ministry from God for a specific period of time in a specific place and they're going to be able to do specific things. That is being revealed. You don't find that anywhere else in scripture. You'll find them referenced back in Zechariah, but this is new information. And so this is something that is being revealed. This would be foretelling. That is not the primary use of prophecy in the New Testament. The primary use of prophecy in the New Testament is forth-telling. It is proclaiming the word of God, most of which has already been revealed. Some of which was being revealed during the time that the New Testament was being written. Some of that was new revelation from God through the apostles, through the writers of the New Testament for our benefit so that we would have everything that we need pertaining to life and godliness. So when a preacher gets up here into that pulpit on Sunday morning, he is prophesying in the sense that he is proclaiming God's truth. That is the primary version. That is the primary meaning of that word, proclaiming God's truth. And that's what these witnesses are going to be doing. They're going to be proclaiming God's truth. Does that make sense? So it's not, necess it's, not, it's not focused. The emphasis is not on revealing something that people don't know or that somehow has, has been hidden until this moment. It's about proclaiming the word of God. <coughs> Excuse me. And so God brings forth these two men. And you'll notice they are referred to, God refers to them as, they are my message. They're my witnesses. And the word for witness is the word from which we get, what, what word, what English word do we get from the Greek word witness? Martyr. So a martyr is one who testifies. We, we have taken that to that a martyr is one who testifies basically with blood. They, they are those who are, are demonstrating that they're being faithful to death. And so we have God saying these are 
my two witnesses. They're going to prophesy for 1260 days, three and a half years, and they're clothed, they're clothed in sackcloth. What, what was sackcloth? Yeah, it's like burlap. Um, is it comfortable? I've never found burlap to be comfortable. And so burlap was used, it was a sign of mourning, um, and it was basically something where uh, when, you, when you see somebody, they're clothed in sackcloth and ashes. The, again, it's mourning. The message that he's bringing is not one of joy and happiness. That's not, that's not what they're bringing. They are bringing, you need to turn. You need to repent or you're going to die. That's your choices. You need to repent or you are going to suffer God's judgment. Now, how is it that we look and say, well, okay, well, how do you know when in this seven-year period of time these people are coming to do their thing? And that clue is who is going to overcome them. Actually, let's back up a little bit. I'm getting ahead of myself. They're focused in Jerusalem. Do you see, did you see how Jerusalem is referenced here? So, was there a hint in the text that there is a figurative allusion here to the identity of the city? Yeah. This city is mystically called Sodom and Egypt. Now that word mystically is only used twice in the New Testament. The other time that it's used, it's translated spiritually. It's, in, it's found in 1 Corinthians where it talks about uh, things that are spiritually appraised, spiritually understood. So the idea here is that spiritually, in a figurative sense, the city where they are ministering is called Sodom and Egypt. Now, are those good um, analogous terms for Jerusalem? Good in the sense of it's, you know, hey, this is, this is, this is positive. This is God building up th this city. Is that good? No, it's not. Sodom. What was Sodom known for? debauchery, rampant immorality, rampant immorality, kind of like we are today as our culture. If God said A, Sodom said B, or Sodom just said non-A, it could be anything, just as long as it's not A. Egypt. Egypt was always a picture of waywardness. Jeremiah, when he was still in, uh, in Judah during the time of the exile, he was constantly telling the people to not go one place in particular. Where was that place? Egypt. They wanted to go because things will be so much better there. And so 
spiritually speaking, Sodom and Egypt are not the places for God's people to be. That's not the place to have their hearts set. So mystically, it is the city that's called Sodom and Egypt. But just to make sure that we understand where this city is, then there's another identifier that's given, and what's that? The place where Jesus was crucified. All right, so now we know exactly where he's referring to now, don't we? That's Jerusalem. These two witnesses are referred to as the two olive trees and the two lampstands that stand before the Lord of the earth. Now, if you were a good Jewish student in the first century, you would know exactly where John, where, where this reference is coming from. If you go back to Zechariah chapter 4, you'll find these two olive trees. Now, the two olive trees depicted in Zechariah chapter 4 have a double meaning. In the immediate context for that, that is referring to Joshua, who was the high priest, and Zerubbabel, who was the grandson of Jehoiachin, although he wasn't acting as king after the exile. It's referring to the leaders of the Jewish people at the time of the return from the exile. So if you go back to Ezra and Nehemiah, you'll find Joshua and Zerubbabel. You'll also find them mentioned by name in Haggai and Zechariah because Haggai and Zechariah are prophesying their ministry is occurring during the, the return from the exile. <coughs> Excuse me. And so these two olive trees, you'll only see one lampstand in Zechariah, but you see later that there are two, um, there are means by which the oil is able to come down and feed the lampstand and these olive trees. And so the idea here, uh, the olive trees represent there's oil for the lamp. Already in, in, uh, in Revelation, where have we seen lampstands in this book? Right, we see them in the first chapter, and there are seven lampstands, and those seven lampstands represented what? According to the text, those seven lampstands represented the churches. And so it's the idea of this is the gospel that is going forth. This, these people are to be the light of God's word to those who are around them. Now, there's a lot of speculation and a lot of ink has been spilt on the idea of identifying who these two witnesses are. And the most common is that uh, one of them is Elijah, and the other one that comes up probably most commonly would be Moses. Now, the reason for this is Elijah did not die, right? How did Elijah pass from this life into the next? Yeah, he's taken up. He goes on a chariot of fire, right? And so he doesn't die in the normal sense. And Moses, the other one that you'll see sometimes is Enoch, because Enoch was out walking with God one day. God says, we're closer to my place than yours. Why don't you just come with me? He pleased God because 
He walked with God. He had faith. He took God at his word. Now, the idea of Moses and, and Elijah is based more on what these two witnesses do. So the idea of being able to shut up, <clears throat> excuse me, the idea of being able to shut up the heavens for three and a half years, who's that reminiscent of? That's Elijah, right? Because Elijah did that in life, if you go back into 1 Kings. The idea of being able to use plagues, who's that reminiscent of? Reminiscent of Moses. And some of these plagues are actually similar to things that Moses did. Now, here's the point. The witnesses aren't named. So their identity doesn't matter. If it mattered, we would be given it. It's like the author of the book of Hebrews. If God wanted us to know who wrote the book of Hebrews, he'd have told us, or the author would have told us. Instead, he actually went to great lengths to not identify who he was. And so the idea here of these two witnesses, it doesn't matter who they are. What matters is the message that they are proclaiming. That's what matters. And the light goes forth from them. And they are unstoppable. You can't keep these guys from fulfilling their mission. Those who try get incinerated. Now that, especially in the, in, the, in the day of satellite and CNN, that has got to be something to watch. I mean, just think about it. And this is not, this is not computer graphics. Here comes somebody to, you know, I, I'm tired of, of you guys. I'm going to take you out here and now. Oh, yeah. Watch this. And Godzilla burns them up. Who needs Godzilla in Tokyo, right? You can't touch these guys as long as they're not done. And then what happens? They fulfill their ministry. The time comes when they have preached their last message. And then they're going to be killed. Who is it that's, that kills them? Go down to verse 7. When they have finished their testimony, the beast that comes up out of the abyss will make war with them and overcome them and kill them. Now, John chooses his words carefully. So we're, now we're introduced to somebody. We've met this guy before, but not specifically identified. We met this guy back in chapter 6. He's the, white, he's the guy who's riding the white horse in chapter 6, verse 2. So in the first seal, when the first seal gets open and you have this rider coming out on a white horse and he's going out to conquer and, and conquering, that is the Antichrist. He's not talked about back then. Here is the first reference, and here we have the first time that this use, we see the word, the beast. 
It's going to happen 37 more times in this book. Here's the first time that he is introduced in that manner. Now, he is also introduced in another way. It's not just the beast. It's the beast that is arising out of the abyss. He's coming up out of the abyss. Now, timing-wise, when is the first time that could have happened? How's anybody getting out of the abyss? First of all, does any demon have the ability to simply say, hey, I think I'm leaving the abyss today? They don't have that ability because they are kept under lock and key. When was the abyss opened? Back in chapter 9, in verse 2. The bottomless pit, the abyss, is opened. So the earliest that we can be talking about the beast that comes up out of the abyss is when chapter 7, verse 2 is occurring. And that realistically is probably about two-thirds of the way through the tribulation time. That is, that's in. Sweetie? I meant 9, verse 2, thank you. I'm off my game this morning. Did I? Pardon me? <laughs> yeah, and I thought Alan was going to be up in uh, Alaska. So, oh, this Wednesday? Okay. So John specifically refers to him here as the, the beast that comes up out of the abyss. Now, we're going to see when we get to chapter 13 that this beast is going to be identified as coming up out of the sea. And in chapter 13, the idea of coming up out of the sea is the idea that he is a man. He's arising out of the sea representing the nations of the earth. And so here you have someone who is a man. Yet at the same time, he is dominated by a demon. He's possessed, if you want to use that term. How uncommon is that? Or how common is it? Jesus encountered a lot of them, didn't he? And in fact, when you look in the New Testament, you see a lot of things where the manifestation of being possessed by a demon can appear as sickness. It can appear as a physical limitation, someone who's mute, someone who is deaf. You see it as someone who is um, very belligerent. You had the, the, the demoniac who could not be restrained even with chains. The Incredible Hulk had nothing on this guy. And so you saw a lot of things where Jesus was rather, frankly, rather frequently 
casting demons out of people. And you might think that, well, you know, that's kind of that's strange, except what are Christians commanded to do? One of the things that Christians are commanded to do, do not be drunk with wine wherein is dissipation, but be filled with the Spirit. The idea of being filled with the Spirit is being dominated by the Holy Spirit. You're controlled. You're yielding yourself over to the control of God. And the evidence of that yielding is that certain fruits begin to be evident in your life. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control, all of those things begin to be evident in your life. Why? Because you have yielded over control how you, dis how you view things, how you act, how you speak. All of those things are yielded to the domination of God and his Holy Spirit. These people are dominated otherwise because they are yielding over control to the influences of evil. And so the idea here is that you've got this man who is a man. He's going to be born and he's going to go out and you know, Elijah went out in a chariot of fire. This guy's going to go out, cast alive, into the lake of fire. He's a man, and yet he is also under the domination of demonic forces, demonic influence. And so this man is going to be able to come along and he is going to be able to overcome and he's going to kill these two witnesses. Now, on a world stage, how is that going to affect this guy and his influence? Well, wait a minute. This guy's able to do something that no one else has been able to do. Everybody else gets French fried and this guy is able to come in and he's able to overcome these guys. Therefore, we are going to give our allegiance to him, and he's going to be able to have a very prominent place on a global scale. The worst way, especially in the ancient world, but even today, if you want to disrespect your enemy when you are finally able to kill him, what do you do with him? You leave him out. Isn't it, I don't know if you've ever noticed, but in time of war, after a battle, what's one of the first things that gets done? You bury your dead, you bury the other guy's dead too. You bury them. You are according some respect to them. These guys don't get that. They're gonna be left for dead in the streets of Jerusalem for three and a half days while the biggest party ever starts off. P 
people around the world are having a party. They are celebrating the fact that these two people who have been tormenting them, they've been tormenting them with truth, and they've been tormenting them by their resiliency. You can't get rid of these guys. And so now that they're gone, people are sending presents to each other. Now that, it's Christmas time. It, it, it's, I don't think I've ever seen anything like that. Okay, Danny is saying that, you know, after the two towers fell, there were parties that were, you know, all over the world in certain areas. Um, the idea here is that this is a celebration. In fact, it's something that people are calling each other up. Hey, did you see this? Oh, this is so cool. Here, uh, have, have a bottle of wine or here, have this. And they're, and they're sending gifts back and forth. Matt? Oh, yeah. So these two guys, yeah, these two guys have been a thorn in the sides of those who dwell on the earth. And again, in the book of Revelation, when you see that phrase, those who dwell on the earth, who does that represent? Non-believers, those who refuse to repent, those who refuse to believe. And so, you know, all of a sudden, their main nemesis, all of a sudden, has been conquered and removed, and it's party time. And that party goes on for several days. Matt? Oh, they're still out and about. They're still out and about. They're, they're scattered all over the place. And the reason that we know that, uh, and okay, so the question is, where are the 144,000? They're all over because who is coming to Christ during this, this last part of the tribulation? Men from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. And so it's worldwide. And so you have the effect. God's word is going throughout the planet. And it is going forth effectively. And people are coming. People are being bought. They're being redeemed. So these guys get killed. They're laying out for three and a half days. The world's having a huge party. And that party has a very abrupt stop. Because right in broad daylight, the breath of God enters those two men, and they stand up. Now, three and a half days, you remember that Lazarus was in the tomb for four days, right? And why were Lazarus's sisters reluctant to have Jesus go in the tomb to see Lazarus? Lord, by now, he reeketh, right? Three and a half days is long enough. Trust me. If you've ever had that experience, you know full well. These guys, okay, these two witnesses, they are not mostly dead, right? They are dead, dead. They've been dead. And all of a sudden, <laughs> God brings them back to life and they stand up. And now what is the response of the people who have been having the big party? You talk about a drop the mic moment. All of a sudden, uh, 
And not only do they stand... Now, here's the other thing. If you're here this morning and you don't have Christ, you need to pay attention right now. Okay? When these witnesses come back to life, what do they do? Do they pick up where they left off? Do they begin proclaiming the message that they've been proclaiming for three and a half years? No. That ship has sailed. When they come back, there's a voice from heaven, come up here. And they ascend in a cloud up into heaven. Now, what does that remind you of? How did Jesus ascend into heaven? On a cloud. They don't resume the message. So what are you getting the impression? What, what sense are you getting here about the chances for people in, in this moment in time? Your opportunities for turning, your opportunities for repentance are running out. And so for us today, the time is now. Now's the acceptable day. To, today is the acceptable time. And so here you have, they're called up into heaven and there's a big earthquake in Jerusalem. A tenth of the city falls down. Now there is, in the language, uh, when it talks about these 7,000 that are killed, uh, it, there is a, a strange way in which they're named and so there's a hint that perhaps these are people of influence, that these are people, you know, the 7,000 that, you know, hey, you know, these are, these are mucky mucks in, uh, in the scheme of things. So here you have this, this earthquake and the hail and, um, oh, excuse me, that's later. This is just the earthquake. Now, again, we've seen this before in Revelation, haven't we? Where here comes an event and people realize who's causing the event. Back when um, the sixth seal back in chapter six, where you have uh, people, unrepentant people, fleeing to the mountains, to the caves, and they're saying, fall on us and hide us from the presence of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of their wrath has come and who's able to stand? They know who God is. Their problem isn't information. Their problem isn't that somehow they, they, they're lacking something that they need. Their problem is they simply refuse to bow their knee. They refuse to repent. And the same thing is happening here. They know it's the God of heaven that's causing these things. Yet, their attitude remains. We will not have this man to rule over us. And now the second woe comes to an end. So the first woe
was the locust. Back in chapter 9, first half. So you have this, the ability to cause pain, uh, to bring pain that is, that will not, they can't die. It's just agony that's being inflicted on them. And again, it's only those who don't have the mark of God on their forehead. Gunnar, do you have a question? Okay, so Gunner's point is that um, his understanding has been that the, the, the time of the witnesses basically would be the first half of the tribulation because that desecration of the, um, in the temple occurs at the midpoint. Um, and that is a common view. Um, I think that given that the description of this is occurring during the, uh, the trumpet judgments where you're having um, the judgment of God being ratcheted up, so to speak, when you see the, the locusts in chapter 9 and then the army from the east in the second half of chapter 9 and the, the idea that it's the beast that has come up out of the abyss that is accomplishing uh, the the overcoming of the um, of the witnesses, I think that pushes that further. Uh, I, I think realistically, the witnesses are coming in a little before the midpoint, and they're staying until a little before the ending. That is how I would view that. Um, I would not hold that tightly. But I think that makes more sense with the, uh, with the text and how he's referenced um, than tying it specifically to just the first half. But again, that is a very common, that's a common view. Alan. Okay, and so the, the question is, what do we make of the comment that these people at this time are giving glory to God, whereas back in chapter 6 they were calling on the rocks to fall on us and hide us from the presence of him who sits on the throne and of the Lamb. The idea of giving glory to God is not, that ability is not restricted to believers. In fact, uh, we've already seen that the time is coming. Uh, in fact, if you go back to chapter 5, it talked about every created thing praising God and bringing glory to him. Now, the day is coming 
um, where those who are dead and condemned are going to glorify God. They're going to glorify God by their punishment. That brings just as much glory to him as redemption. So the idea of being able to glorify God, so another example might be Nebuchadnezzar. Now whether or not Nebuchadnezzar is going to be in heaven, I, th I don't know the answer to that question. Did Nebuchadnezzar glorify God after his being uh, basically made a beast of the field? Did he bring glory to God? Absolutely he did. Does that mean he was redeemed? No, it's just simply he came to recognize who God was. That doesn't mean that he was necessarily bowing his knee to him. And so the idea of bringing glory to God and glorifying God is the idea of, yeah, I recognize that God is who he says he is. But I can do that and not be repentant. Satan is going to glorify God. Satan... Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Later today, we're going to see evidences of when somebody is truly redeemed and how they view themselves and how they view what they have done. Uh, uh, you've had your hand up for a while, Alan, or uh, Andrew. Well, it doesn't say that. And again, keep in mind that recognizing and admitting that God is who he says he is, that God is the one who is sovereign, that God is the one who is in control of all things, that, that he, in fact, rules in the affairs of men. You can, these people are going to be able to recognize that. And so, first of all, it's going to be a hard attitude. Okay, I recognize that God's God and I'm not. That doesn't translate into being redeemed. Because again, the day is coming, right? Every knee is going to bow. Every tongue is going to confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. They, they are bringing glory to God because they recognize who Jesus is. Rightly. The demons do that. The, the demons know who Jesus is. They know very well who he is. Yet, they're unredeemed. Hang on one second. Greg. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. Right, so uh, Greg is referring to Romans 1 where um, they knew who God was, yet they suppressed the truth. Sam?
Right. It, right. So Sam's point is, if you go back to Genesis 11 and the Tower of Babel, you know, man has consistently been on a mission of denying the truth that God says and replacing it with man's own way of thinking and man's own evaluation of what life is and how it's to be done. And so, again, you have all of these things coming through, and the, 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 end, the, the, the sum total of it is they're realizing Time out. God is God. I'm not. Yet, again, just like the demons, you can have that knowledge. Again, the issue is not ignorance. The issue isn't lack of information. The issue is I refuse to repent. I will not bow, even though I know this to be true. And so you... And actually, you know, this is, this is a scary thing when all of a sudden you realize that people come to the point where they won't change. They won't repent. And it doesn't matter what you tell them. It doesn't matter. And by the way, there was another point that was made. You know, these, these, these witnesses rise from the dead. Gee whiz, doesn't that look like a great gospel opportunity that here you have these two guys that have been dead for three and a half days and they get up and they immediately go back into proclaiming the truth. It doesn't matter because what did Jesus tell the rich man? Remember the story of rich man and Lazarus? What did Jesus tell him? Lord, send Lazarus back. They'll listen to Lazarus. And what did Jesus tell them? They have Moses. They have the prophets. If they won't hear the truth, it won't matter if somebody rises from the dead. It won't matter if there's a miracle. That won't matter. Because that's never saved anybody. Ever. It's always been the truth of God that saves. That's what saves. Only. Ever. And so the idea here that somehow we got to, you know, we got to get celebrities because, you know, if it's a celebrity, people will listen. Or we got to have signs and miracles because if we have those, people are going to listen. No, they won't. It's about the truth. You, you, you've heard the story of the conversion of Charles Spurgeon, right? You know that story? Spurgeon goes to church. It's a Sunday evening. The regular, the regular pastor is sick, kind of like last week. The regular pastor is sick. So a deacon, unnamed. Nobody knows the name of this guy. He's not real learned. He's not real educated. And so his message, he gets up, and as he's preaching... Look to Christ. Look to Christ. Look to Christ. And Spurgeon wrote, and I did look, and the, and the heavens opened to me. It wasn't about some guy getting up and having three points in a poem. It was about the redeeming message of God's word. That's what it's always been. So, Please have some sense of relief 
look, I don't have all the answers to everything. I don't know anybody who does. Some people are a lot better than others. But the fact of the matter is, what matters is that when we are in contact with somebody who doesn't know the truth, that we open our mouths and we speak the truth that we know. And let God work with the rest of it. All we need to do is just be faithful in proclaiming what we know. All right, very quickly. Seventh. Would I say that God's truth is sufficient? God's truth is sufficient for converting somebody, yes. No, it's not an information problem because, again, most people, the law of God is written on the heart. And, and, what do, and what do unbelievers do? By nature, we suppress the truth. And so, again, it is, you've got God calls, God elects, God chooses the time, he chooses the means, he chooses all of those things. And those who are called are going to come. And those who are not are still going to have been exposed to the truth of God. And yet they have refused to repent. People everywhere are commanded to repent and believe. What was Jesus' first message? It was real complicated. There were two points. Number, point number one, repent. Point number two, believe. Repent and believe the gospel. That was his first message. And so that's what, uh, that is what it comes to, is am I going to repent? Am I going to turn? Was there another hand? Okay, so the word of God is the seed, the spirit you know, sprouts those. That is, yes, we can plant the seed. It's the Holy Spirit who brings about conversion. Salvation is of the Lord. It always has been. It always will be. What was that, Brian? That, that's what I was trying to stop. <laughs> if you're somebody who hears you say, oh, it's just the truth of God, and that, that information is what converts you. Right. And so, it, look, if it was just about information, every demon would be in heaven. They know who Jesus is. And they tremble. They know what awaits them. It's judgment that awaits them. So it's not information. It's not just a knowledge of something. All right, we're going to stop. We'll finish off chapter 11 next week. Any other questions? All right, Andrew. Oh, the problem isn't with me. It's with everybody else in here, buddy.
for the tape, Andrew has got a, uh, he, he's talking about the, um, the issues of God's election. He chooses some, he doesn't choose, choose all. That I can't give a 30-second answer to that, and so let's, let's hold that for next week, okay? Um, all right, let's pray. Father, thank you that you have revealed so much, that you have given us your written word, that you have given us uh, the law of God written on our hearts, that you have made so many things known about yourself, about how we can be rescued, about how we can be redeemed, that we, how we can be set free from the, from the punishments that we rightly deserve because of our rebellion, because of our sin. Thank you that you have, throughout history, you have had your men, your women, who proclaim your truth, who have faithfully declared the message. And Father, thank you that you have drawn, you have redeemed men, women, kids from every tribe, every tongue, every people, every nation. Your gospel has gone around the planet. And you are at work. You are actively at work still redeeming people. And we're grateful because <laughs> you've redeemed us. And Lord, you give us the ability to be your hands and your feet and your mouths that we may declare your truth, that we may declare your holiness and your, your goodness and your majesty. Father, help us to be faithful that we would honor you with our lives and how we how we conduct ourselves. Lord, help us to honor you with our hearts that we would be devoted to you, that we would constantly speak of you, that people would know that you are important, that you are worthy of worship because of how we regard you, because of how we speak of you, because of how we obey. Father, thank you so much that you have given us so much. Help us to demonstrate gratitude by obedience and devotion. In Christ's name, amen.